0: Hey, it's Greg Brady. I'm in for Kelly Cutrero this week, guest hosting lots of content on the podcast today. No question about it. The NDP says there's a better way to do school this fall. But do they have any problem with the high school plan? We're all talking about the elementary school plan. What's their thought on high schools returning? We'll talk to the powder keg that is Joe Walsh, a former Republican congressman who has split ranks with the party and split ranks with Donald Trump. Why? He doesn't think it matters who Joe Biden picks as vice president which he probably will do sometime next week, and the Maple Leafs don't get out of their own way in a game three loss. We'll address that as well. It's all coming up on the podcast. Let's start with the NRA. You mentioned um, yesterday was was kind of a, a bombshell for a lot of people. Obviously, somebody knows it's coming, but you've mentioned it before. Um, you know, you you've, you're a gun owner. You've supported the NRA before, uh, but you say now, never again. There's there's a ton of lawsuits, a ton of investigations, and. Joe, this sounds like something right out of... You know, this is like Jim Baker, uh, Jimmy Swaggered mid-80s misrepresentation of, of funds. This is televangelism-type scandal stuff, it looks like to me on paper.
1: Uh, Greg, totally. Look, my deal is really clear. If you're a law-abiding gun owner in America like I am, you should be freaking pissed off at the NRA today. They, they stole our money, uh, plain and simple. Again, I'm not surprised... Uh, This had been kind of in the works for a while, and as someone uh, who had been a dues-paying member to the NRA, there had been whispers for a long time that Wayne LaPierre and some of the other upper executives were misusing funds. They got too big and too corrupt. They forgot their mission. Screw them. I'm a gun owner, Greg, and, Mm -hmm. and to me, the NRA ought to be dissolved it's lost its original purpose
0: in an election where everything is up for grabs we've got a global pandemic on um i agree with you uh i don't mind saying we've got a remarkably dangerous reckless uh president in the white house so all that being on the table will there be candidates in your mind uh in the senate and the house specifically that disavow from the NRA, is this their opportunity over the next three months to to reject the money, to give money back, say exactly what you just said, Joe, I'm done because I can't keep my seat otherwise. You keep the money, I want to keep my seat.
1: No, they're cowards. Greg, it just makes me sad, but we've we've seen three and a half years now. Of no backbone from my Republican colleagues in the House and the Senate when it comes to a president who's been acting like he's above the law and breaking laws left and right. So they're not going to go after the NRA. The NRA, by the way, is still going to contribute, make political contributions these final 90 days, and these Republicans will not want to alienate that organization. It's a shame they should but they're cowards
0: so no one's in like even even i know you've been on real time with bill maher a bunch of times he even he's suggesting or hinting there might be a breaking point for some republic even even when trump says hey maybe we won't have an election the next day out And i'm not saying he's been very brave through this process but there's a pretty powerful guy in mitch mcconnell saying of course we're having an election we're not we've never delayed an election before we're not delaying it now is there like can that lead to something
1: no i don't think on this one look again Most people don't realize uh, the influence you do, the influence that the NRA has held on Republicans for so long. You've got 90 days before an election. uh, Republicans don't want to lose their base. They don't want to anger their voters. It's why they won't speak up against Trump really until after the election. So they're not going
0: to waste their time going after the NRA. Okay, so Joe, will will this, the, the end result for the NRA here, if someone's saying, wow, this is bad news for the NRA, yeah, it is, but maybe just financially. You're saying it's not going it, to, it may not affect their sway, it may not affect their power, and there's a lot of Americans, a lot of Canadians uh, disappointed by the power and sway no, that I they think, have.
1: No, 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 Greg, I think the NRA is done. I think the NRA will literally fold up. I think it's too it 's way too corrupt and tarnished now, mm. I believe another gun rights group will come to the fore um, i i 'm just saying between now and the election okay. i don 't see a Republican taking them on, but no, my friend, I agree I, look, I think the n r a is done. I think they will dissolve it 's just too dirty of an organization.
0: I know uh, I I know SE Cup had a tweet yesterday and you had a response to it and I think this is a fascinating discussion because the the choice for vice presidents always fascinated me it's fascinated me since I was a, a little little boy but she noted that her she's been at you know very militant very critical of Donald Trump as well as you have maybe not to the same extent but she says well my vote for Joe Biden hinges on who he picks for vice president and you're like me and probably a lot of people hearing this going. Really? That's the card that needs to be turned to decide whether or not to vote for Trump after four years.
1: Greg, I screamed when I saw that. What the hell? Se? what are you talking about? (laughs) The damn, the damn country is burning down right now. 160,000 people are dead. We're in the middle of a pandemic with a president who doesn't give a damn and doesn't care. And you're worried about who Biden's vice presidential pick might be. That's not serious. Look, The only thing that matters is that Trump loses. He is a cancer on this country. Uh, From the beginning, Greg, I didn't even care who the Democratic nominee is. If it had been Bernie, I was all in for Bernie. It doesn't matter who the VP pick is. The only thing that Mm. matters is Trump has to lose.
0: The excellent Joe Walsh, our guest on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Let me pivot back to four years ago and ask you when both candidates chose their vice president I, I was boy when when hillary chose uh, tim kane i'm like you gotta be joking here's a guy uh boring as hell we don't know what he's accomplished and and maybe the concept was for hillary well i polarize people hillary does that is but this guy won't yeah it doesn't matter nobody knows who he is and he was flat as a pancake debating mike pence and for what we could say about trump if, if you want to talk strategy joe pence was an excellent pick because he locked up the evangelical christians he locked he locked up the god squad and they came and they voted and they voted in states in the in that rust belt area where i used to live in michigan wisconsin pennsylvania he they he they came out and they said mike pence is on the ticket this is good for us good for supreme court good for pro-life all that stuff And, and hillary's people said tim Kaine doesn't do it for me it stayed home did the vice presidential picks not swing yeah. the election but they, they they tilted it towards donald trump's success didn't they
1: look if hillary picks elizabeth warren in 16 hillary clinton's president
0: yes hillary Great.
1: clinton greg was a lousy candidate a boring establishment candidate and she picked a boring establishment guy because she was clueless she thought she had that race in the bag, which is why she didn't campaign in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. You're absolutely right. It was a, it was a choice made by someone who thought she was going to beat Donald Trump. If she had picked anybody exciting, she'd be president.
0: Tell us about the Bravery Project. I want to get some other topics about VP, but I know this is something you just got started a couple days ago. People yeah. see the ads for the Lincoln Project. Will this be yep. in a similar vein? What will we see from the Bravery Project in the next couple months and next 90 days, obviously?
1: No, you won't see ads. We're not doing ads. Here's mm-hmm. the deal with the Bravery Project. We're almost the antithesis of that. We're all grassroots. We have hundreds of thousands of people, Republicans and conservatives, Greg, in these battleground states who don't want to vote for Trump. They want to come out and say they're vote for Biden. And they want to know how can I recruit other Republicans and conservatives to vote for Biden. So the bravery project is a grassroots organization to give these Republicans the tools they need to figure out how to go out and recruit people in their communities, not just to vote for Joe Biden, but to vote for, to vote against all these Senate Republicans who have enabled Donald Trump. So it's it's a grassroots organization. We're not doing ads.
0: Mm. Is it a strategy of the Democrats? Joe Biden, I played the clip yesterday, had had an interview um and uh, it just it didn't go awesome. Two minutes of it didn't go awesome. Maybe the other 11 minutes did. Uh, and that can happen. But nonetheless, do if you were running that campaign, would you do exactly what the Democrats are doing when the Republicans say they're kind of hiding Joe Biden? I, I'd kind of concur. I think they are. And the pandemic does give them an excuse for him not to be out there, not at a conventional convention. Would you be doing the same thing right now with 77 year old Joe Biden?
1: No, you know, I'm a contrarian, Greg. I'd I'd get him out more, and I'd I'd have Biden be fun and honest with who he is. If I'm Joe Biden, I'd say, look, man, I'm 77. I've lost a step. I'm not 67. I'm not 57, but I'm not an ass. I'm not cruel. I'm not a pathological liar. I'm not corrupt. But, yeah, like like your grandma or your grandpa, I've lost a step. I'm going to say some silly things every now and then, but I'm a decent guy, and I won't lie to you. I think Biden should embrace who he is. I'd get him out there more.
0: All right. So the vice presidential pick, again, I know it doesn't matter to you. Does it move the needle at all? Is Kamala Harris the better pick than uh, than Karen Bass? Uh, I, I agree with you. I think it's lunacy to, to base a vote for Biden. It's You're either in or you're out here on wanting the next four years to continue, or you want something new, Republican or Democrat. Does well, it matter me, who he picks?
1: Yeah, let me agree with you, Greg. I do think his VP pick will move the needle because this is such a unique situation. We have a soon-to-be 78-year-old guy who will only serve one term mm-hmm. if he serves one term. So his VP pick is crucial. He's going to pick a woman. I think he'll pick a woman of color, and I think it's going to jazz folks up and energize folks. I think he should pick someone who doesn't become the story, someone who's already been vetted, i.e. an Elizabeth Warren or a uh, Kamala Harris.
0: There's a lot of revisionist history. I'm curious to get your perspective because uh, things were very different in uh, on our continent and your country, and I was living in your country in 2008. When McCain pick palin what was your initial yeah. reaction because i will tell you i think democrats were a little afraid they saw young she's going to appeal to that soccer mom hockey mom demographic i can relate to her and you know you're you're not a conventional career politician but right. a lot of times people can't relate to tim, the tim Canes, the career conventional politicians don't move the needle and won't get people out uh, to, to to vote i got excited with biden greg uh it,
1: Look, I mean, I'm a conservative, so politically she was where I was. You're right. She was new, a, a female governor. Um, I got excited. I thought it was an exciting pick. And I don't, again, I don't want to rewrite history, but John McCain didn't lose because of Sarah Palin. John McCain lost because of Barack Obama, the economy crashed, and all of that. But I think that was an exciting pick. Again, you and I talked about mm-hmm. it. If Hillary had made an exciting pick, she'd be president. I think Biden's pick will be exciting. I mean, think about it, Greg. Mm -hmm. I still think if if you put a gun to my head, he's probably going to pick Kamala Harris. That's damn exciting. A black female Mm -hmm. vice president in this country. That's awesome.
0: Are there names that you look at and you say when, when it gets all cleaned up, I know you'd describe the Republican Party as a cult. Are there Republicans you look at who are, like we'd say in sports, Joe, you're a sports fan, up and coming, that, that I could look at and go, this is what I want in a candidate. This is I want to, to lead this party back from the ashes or a, damn it, a new party. Are there young Republicans with, the, with, with a small R even that you get excited by?
1: Uh, You know what? they they got to be really young and upcoming because I think the Republican Party's done. Anybody in Washington, D.C., forget about them. I'm telling you, this thing on Trump, I believe the Republican Party is done. I believe it's breaking up before our eyes. Where you are on Trump, you can never walk back. I'm a conservative. Ted Cruz is a conservative. If Ted Cruz runs for president in 2024, I will never support him because he supported Donald Trump. I'm not alone. A lot of people feel like I do. So it, I, I think the, the Republican Party will become a shrunk Trump party. And I think, uh, I think tolerant conservatives are going to launch their own party
0: phenomenal stuff check out the book f silence calling trump out for the cultish moronic authoritarian con man he is and check out the podcast uh as well you can find the book on amazon.ca joe walsh fantastic pleasure having you on here in canada and uh we really really enjoy every minute with you i appreciate the time You're the best, my friend. Thank you. Um, I will. I I will. I just see. I know we talked last week, um, but the reaction has been vociferous and um, I'm I, you know, honestly, I want to talk about the high school plan in a sec, but the elementary school plan just seems to be paramount. It seems to be the biggest thing parents are concerned about. And I would wager that you don't have the best plan across uh, country. A, we haven't even seen plans from some of the, uh, the 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 Atlantic provinces that have these numbers far under control than far more under control than Ontario. But we, as well, um, you know, you wouldn't have a hundred eighty thousand signatures on a petition in this province if you had the best plan and you were the envy of the rest of the country, is my perspective.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm certainly hearing it from parents. It doesn't surprise me that. Uh, That petition that's circulating has 180,000 signatures now. Uh, I'm hearing from hundreds of parents and uh, from across the province who are very worried. You know, in in areas like the GTA, uh, we have, you know, some changes at least at the high school level uh, where you're going to have slightly smaller classes and some online learning. But but in many parts of the province, it's status quo, uh, both at elementary and high school. And so parents are saying, you know, Look, why are our children not a priority here? And the government, what, what really shocks me, and I've said this before here, is that the government has just, what have they been doing for six months? We knew this was coming. We knew at some point there would need to be a return to school. We've, we've been doing all of the work. School boards uh, have been working really hard at different plans, and then they come out with a plan that puts our kids back in crowded classrooms. It just doesn't make any sense, and I think a lot of parents are really unhappy right now.
0: And I'm a little concerned about some of the the rhetoric um, from, uh, you know, Doug Ford yesterday referencing the unions, referencing playing politics. That concerns me. That said, um, you know, it was quite contentious seven, eight months ago between the unions. Of course, there was, uh, you know, there were there was both sides because it's a negotiation, are going to play politics and and hold things back and get things out there publicly. But now is not the time. I I mean, I think there are parents that voted for this government that might even consider themselves anti-union, and they're worried about their own kids in this perspective.
2: That's right, because, you know, in this situation, let's remember that the staff that are in our school are the ones who are going to be ensuring that our kids stay safe. And they're also the adults who will be exposed to the virus. So, you know, they're vulnerable, too. And we have to you know accept that. And I think it's really unfortunate that the that the premier doesn't see that, which is, you know, of course, they have a right to be concerned about their own health and welfare, too. Right. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't have said this about the nurses a few months ago when they were rallying on the on the lawn of Queens Park saying, please, you know, show us some respect because they're essential workers. They're on the front line. We have to start thinking of the education workers in the same way now, because they're the ones who are going to be uh, trying their very best with no additional resources to keep our kids safe.
0: Well, I, w- I would say that as well, a parent said to me yesterday, they're, they're, you know, maybe once everyone is back in Queen's Park and everyone is sitting and you've got a full parliamentary setting, and as you know, there isn't that right now, then I can understand a classroom of 25, because that means we've pushed the virus so far back that we're all back to doing what we were doing, but we're sending kids back and teachers and custodians into an environment that acts like the virus doesn't exist when we know all around us we're doing we're trying to do all the right things to stamp it out, and this contravenes that.
2: That's such a good point. I mean, I've been sitting in the legislature. Of course, it's not sitting right now, and it's not back until September 14th, but up until a few weeks ago, we were in the legislature, and we sure weren't sitting uh, next to each other. We were spaced out, and, and we have to wear masks, Uh, when we're not spaced out and you know there's a lot of tough protocols and we have that in workplaces we have that everywhere and yet somehow this government thinks that our kids are and our and our education staff are supposed to just be crowded right back in and like don't forget the premier said just a few weeks ago he, he didn't want to send kids back to crowded classrooms and that he would spare no expense but we're not seeing that now and I don't know what changed so much in the last couple of weeks Um, Other than I I have to say it, I think he doesn't want to spend the money. And, you know, I have to again, like, I don't know why our education and our kids aren't their number one priority.
0: Mart Stiles, our guest on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Greg Brady chatting with her at 10.11 on a Friday morning. Robin Urbach is a very smart columnist for the Globe and Mail. Here's her tweet, and I want you to react to it. And she wrote this two days ago. It kind of seems like this is the plan. Don't announce smaller class sizes so parents keep their kids out of school. So, boom, smaller class sizes. I think that's pretty prophetic as well.
2: Oh, I I absolutely think she's dead on here. I think that the government is banking on parents not sending their children back to school. Uh, they're telling parents, hey, you have a choice. But you know, the truth is that that may be a choice for some, but it's not a choice for a lot of people. And so uh, I think we're going to see big uh, inequities across the city, uh, across the province, uh, some areas, some schools where you know, in lower income areas where parents cannot afford to stay home and no longer work, uh, can't make those so-called choices. So we're going to see a big, a big disproportion there um, of kids who are going to be put in those staying in those crowded, cramped classrooms. So I, I, you know, I've been telling parents who contact me and say, you know, I'm thinking about keeping my kid up. I completely understand. My child is 16. So she's a high school student. It's going to be different. If I was a parent of a small child, I'd be having those same, you know, making those same decisions. I mean, I'd be worried, too. But let's not give up. Let's keep putting the pressure on them to do better. The government needs to do better. here. So, uh,
0: yeah, you being the education critic, would you say that you do have more confidence in the high school plan? What what flaws are there? There must be things you like about it more oh. than the elementary school plan.
2: You know, I, I think it's good that they're going to be restricted to the 15 students. That's a, a definitely a step in the right direction. I think the online piece is still going to be really tricky, and I don't think a lot of parents yet understand how that's going to, Play out, I think it's, you know, and, and we have many questions still. So there are some significant concerns and it's certainly not going to work well for every student or every child. Absolutely. Um, the other thing to remember is that in many parts of the province, they're just going back again to school status quo. So the government said some high schools in some, well, some areas of the province just go back to normal. So that, so here in the GTA, we're going to have those smaller classes uh, for high school, some online learning, but in the rest of the province, they're just sending their kids back to school. Everybody's going to be on buses, just like normal. <laughs>
0: uh what about elementary schools and the potential to utilize uh gyms more the, the the ability to at least use the outside spaces while we have an opportunity to generally speaking across the province there's more room at an elementary school because of sports fields baseball diamonds a lot of high schools and a lot of high schools in the city as we know it's just basically blacktop might be a room for a basketball court or two but the elementary schools ha- can utilize these spaces I, that, that is on the school boards, right? They need to determine what those best courses of actions are. Are those kind of conversations and developments, uh, from your knowledge, taking place?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, school boards are really working really hard right now because this new plan that the government threw at them last week was not what they had been planning for, so they're scrambling. And I have I know that last night, for example— uh, the uh, Toronto School Board, Toronto District School Board, Public Board uh, met. And for example, uh, they considered a report from Toronto Public Health, which said, we don't think it's safe to send kids back mm-hmm. to these large classes. We don't. We want to see more focus on uh, outdoor learning and more space between students. And so I think these are the things that our boards are all going to be, you know, t- taking into consideration. I just wish that the government had taken our advice and and the advice of many uh, a few weeks, a few months ago, and actually said to school boards, okay, we're going to try to free up some space in additional buildings. Uh, We're going to work with all levels of government to find additional space. Uh, Because, yes, definitely outdoor space is a really key part of any plan to return. It needs to be. But, you know, at the end of the day, if we don't have additional staff support in these classrooms, that is also going to be an issue because you're not going to be able to, as a teacher, and I have heard from so many of them, uh, it's going to be really hard for them to enforce some of these things when you have a class of, you know, say 25, 30 students and you don't have uh, any additional support. So, you know, we know how, look, as parents, mm-hmm. we know how hard it is to wrangle a couple of little kids, yeah. but imagine doing that with a class of 25.
0: Well, uh, and we've had a couple of epidemiologists on the show this week. One of which was a, a main contributor to the Sick Kids Plan, and and I think he took great umbrage, if you will, with the idea two days ago of the premier saying it's not our plan; it's Sick Kids Plan. Nah, the recommendations he made for the Sick Kids Plan they're not getting implemented. They were like the, they're they're not getting utilized here by the province. So all the work he did, all the recommendations he made, all the charts, all the graphs, they just got ignored.
2: Yeah, I think it's really unfortunate that, uh, although I have to say not too surprising, that the premier is passing the buck here. He knows that this is going to be difficult, and I'm going to just say it, probably dangerous plan. And rather than, you know, actually showing some leadership here, he's passing the buck to uh, shirk some responsibility. And look, he's the premier of the province. Mm. This is the minister of education. They have the power to make this happen, and we know what's needed. Uh, they've made this call, and it isn't actually in line with the sick kids' recommendations. Uh, and even Toronto Public Health now is saying, not not what we want to see either. So mm. it's time for them to, to, to step back, to make the decision, to put the resources in place to keep our kids safe.
0: I appreciate you coming on and taking the time, uh, Mart. Great, uh, Great to talk to you, and have a great weekend.
2: Oh, you too. Thanks.
0: Our next guest has been fantastic on the COVID beat. He wrote a great column on education, incredibly multifaceted, and I'm uh, happy to welcome him on from the Toronto Star, Bruce Arthur. What about them mascots? Where are these NHL mascots? You can't get rid of them at NHL All-Star Games. Are are they not in the bubble? Well, I think they are not
3: deemed essential personnel when it comes to playing a hockey game, so that's why the mascots are not in the building. But the best part about that Leafs, not the best part, but one of the funny (laughs) parts about the Leafs game is that Columbus dressed in the Leafs room.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: But that's just part of like the the sacred nature of the hockey locker rooms. People got to let that go because at this point, this is a triaged playoffs. And the good news for the Leafs is they get another chance tonight. And the bad news is that the game last night's game ended like what, like twelve hours ago? Yeah, not quite.
0: I love, I love the back-to-back concept. I was in I was in Detroit during the Scotty Bowman years, and and you'd know like there'd be your whole news story for one day would be like, did Scotty take some wood off the visiting team's bench? Did they paint the visiting team's locker room so that it smells bad for the Colorado? A- like you can play all kinds of it. now. Now you get it's the opposite. You you get into the home team's locker room. You can you can have some real fun with that if you're John Tortorell and you get creative like the pipes, right? The heating vents, all everything, right? He would never do anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) Never! Well, he has tried to get into other teams' locker rooms before quite violently, so, you know, why stop now?
3: (laughs) One of my favorite John Tortorella story, real quickly, is one night he's in Boston, his brother comes to see him. They blow a lead, they lose. His brother's waiting outside the locker room. He blows by them, walks straight to the bus, sits on the bus, and the general manager, Jay Feaster, goes, John, that's your brother, what are you doing? And then Tortorella goes, yeah, you're right. I'll
0: call him tomorrow. <laughs> nah, yeah, it's all all, all fun and uh, in love and war. Uh, well, like Wendell Clark wouldn't fight uh, Joey Coaster the one year because he was cousins with him in 1987. So Coaster followed him around, would punch him in the shoulder. That's a 1987 series. John Bro, the late John Bro, he's like, get will you will you fight him? He's like, hey, I got to see him in the summer. I you know some some players just had that uh, had that you know DNA that they wouldn't cross that line. <laughs> So give me a sense. uh, um, We'll we'll pivot to schools. It's on everybody's mind. I'm sure it's on your mind as a parent. I've, uh, you know, uh, on Thursday, you thought, well, they're doing what they can. Look, we'd have blown the government out if they'd announced the plan in June before we hurdled all these stages. And we'd be like, it's too early for a plan. But. We're seeing mounting criticism. Petition of almost two hundred thousand parents saying, especially for the elementary school, Bruce, that it's not enough. And even if it was enough, the communication has been so back and forth. That was, I think, Doug Ford has has been relatable, and people have have said he's human. He's what he's what I wish our prime minister was a little more of, and that I can relate to him. And yet, I think he's had a really bad week. You wrote about it. I've talked about it here. Um, the whole, it's not our plan, it's sick kids plan. That's not, that doesn't hold water with parents because it isn't even the sick kids plan. There's been so many recommendations passed over that people contributed to it.
3: Yeah, so the thing is, uh, I'll say this with the plan. I'll start with this. It's not the worst plan. If you do compare it to other provincial plans, there's more masking in the Ontario plan. There's the possibility of public health nurses, not definite public health nurses, but as needed is what the plan says. There are aspects of this plan which aren't, Bad. Like BC's plan is going to require probably substantial renovation because it looks like they drafted that back when they had almost almost no community transmission. Now that's changed in BC, so I'm, I'm not saying the Ontario plan is utterly negligent or anything like that. This isn't Georgia sending the kids back to school and expelling them for saying, "Hey, we got crowded hallway Yeah. But that said, the bar on this is higher. It's higher than just what you're spending versus every other province in the country, even per capita. It's higher than Our plan is better than BC's because what are you asking parents to do? You are asking parents to send their kids back to what they hope is a safe environment. And yes, children don't get sick at the same rate as adults. Mercifully, that's one of the things about this disease that is, that is good, but you're asking your children to go back in a pandemic to school. And so the bar on communicating this plan has to be higher. The bar on how you, deal with parents' concerns has to be higher. And this comes back to something I've been talking about almost feels like the entire pandemic. The communication for public health in Ontario is a disaster. And the fact that we've gotten this far and gotten our numbers down as far as we have, thank goodness, has been happened despite that. David Williams, as a chief medical officer of health, is a disastrous communicator, Mm -hmm. which leaves Doug Ford. Because Williams doesn't even do daily briefings anymore. And Doug Ford, as someone who communicates public health, you see where the real weaknesses of this premier are, right? The fact that he keeps saying, this is the sick kids plan. And every question is, hey, wait a minute, premier. The sick kids say you need smaller class sizes. You haven't done that. And that, that was four or five questions on Thursday. The fact that Doug Ford cannot even communicate what is actually happening here. People said, oh, well, look, what about class size? He said, well, we have the lowest class sizes in the country because, yeah, we're capped at 30 for kindergarten, but there's two adults in the room. So it averages up to 15. That's lower than anywhere else. We're not talking about education ratios here. We're talking about how many people are in a room. This is public health. And uh, there was so many gaps like that where it didn't seem like the premier understood what he was talking about. And if you're trying to sell a plan in good faith, which I'm going to go ahead and say these guys are as much as they have. Yeah, hostility to the public school system. I think they're trying to do the right thing here. But I just, if you're a parent, you don't get 200,000 signatures on a petition that fast, unless there's a real problem with confidence in a plan. And that's where we are right now. And by the way, schools open in three weeks.
0: Yeah, and and, and yeah, you're right. Life's moving at at breakneck speed and and we know charitable contributions are down, so stuff comes across our our email, stuff stuff comes on our phone, and we're ignoring a lot of it because we're just focused on the here and now. We're focused on Mm -hmm. our households, we're focused on just getting through the day by day. So the fact that that many people pivoted from whatever was important to them, Bruce, and said, I'm gonna sign this and I'm gonna send it to twenty of my friends right now, like that's incredibly significant. The the moment the moment as well with the uh, the back and forth about the yeah two times fifteen equals thirty and it's in the it reminded me of the of the post Mother's Day and again Ford's communication has been again I'd say I'd say a lot of Ontario residents say he's human he's troubled by this it, it, it's relatable but he did that after Mother's Day where he said yeah we we fought we hope everyone followed all the rules our daughters came over but the husbands and boyfriends didn't come and I'm yelling at the TV that's not how this works that's not how it works it, it, blood relatives are not immune to sharing the virus with other people that they live with what are we doing well
3: and go back to the very beginning when we do a post of ontario's response and why it was so bad here one of the big reasons was the same day that bonnie henry in bc said do not go on spring break doug ford said i hope everyone has a good time and but public health people will tell you public health officials will tell you is they were on top of this until about mid-march late march and that's when everyone came back from spring break. And that's what swamped Quebec and it's what swamped Ontario and they weren't ready for it. And they didn't quarantine people properly, which was a federal issue. Mm-hmm. But also too many people went. Too many people went away and came back with the virus. And it transferred from a rich person's disease to a poor person's disease. And that's where we are. But one thing that people will tell you, people who are fairly familiar with how the province has structured the, the health table and the Ministry of Health, and uh, Ontario Public Health and the various individual health boards around the province. One thing that people will tell you is when it comes to pandemic response, when it comes to being in charge of this entire operation and making sure all the pieces work together, what they'll tell you is no one's really in charge. There are people in charge of parts of it and people. There, and there's a lot of good people doing a lot of good work. The public health uh, mm-hmm. units have worked so hard. They should all write books at the end of this. But no one's really in charge of the overall picture. And that's where it lands with Doug. And he can't communicate on, a, on public health. That's fine. Okay, you, you can live with that. But policy wise, so many of these policies seem ad hoc. There's a lot of you guys figured out and they've done that with the school boards, where the, the, school, the school board should have input on this. But there's no overall plan. It's You guys figure it out. But that was the same way with daycares. It was the same way with a lot of workplaces. It was the same way with churches. It was the same way with an enormous amount of how this worked. And the fact is, you know what? We're still in pretty good shape. We've been five straight days under 100 for the province. This is pretty good. But every epidemiologist you talk to who has any any reputation at all will tell you, wait till the fall because a lot of what has happened, they believe, is just people went outside. And we're not going to be able to do that in the winter, and that's where schools become so important that these kids will be in classrooms for a very long time, every day.
0: Bruce Arthur, uh, the excellent columnist from the Toronto Star, joining me on Global News Radio six forty Toronto. Yeah, like I had a couple of people come at me on uh, on the tweet box yesterday, and they're like, "Come on, you can't." You know, I, I live in Durham and Ajax. There's not that many cases there, and I said. Help me out and understand why we have such few cases, because we've stopped doing all these things. We're not gathering inside. We're not at Leafs games. We're not at concerts. And now we're going to take 25 and 30 kids that don't know much about distancing. We're going to shove them in a bunch of rooms five days a week, seven hours a day. And then, as you note, it's going to get colder. we got to close the windows. we got to bundle up to go outside. There's going to be coughing. There's going to be runny noses. You know what it's like when a flu bug runs through. You have double the kids I've got. When a flu bug runs through the house, it runs through the house. And that's going to happen at a lot of Ontario homes that, you know, there's kids that live in apartment buildings that that somebody gets sick on the same floor and they're going to get sick.
3: Well, and we get get a heat wave every September, right? Every September there's Mm -hmm. a heat wave that sweeps across Ontario very few schools have air conditioning in this province. And what happened in Israel, is they had a heat wave, they turned on the air conditioning in those schools, closed the windows, and let the kids take their masks off. And that's how Israel, that's one of the ways that Israel had a resurgence of the virus. The thing with this is, so there is increasing evidence that kids do carry as much or more viral load than adults. And how well they spread it is still a bit of a question, but it doesn't seem like there's a huge difference. It's how the virus affects them. And that's great. If you have a kid under 10 years old, you can feel good about the fact that it's very unlikely that they will die from this. Same with you have a kid under 19. It's very unlikely. But do they spread it to people at home? And here's the the next part of that. Mm-hmm. What have we seen in terms of how this virus has moved? I talked about a little bit earlier. This started as a virus in Canada of people who had the money to travel and come back. And it moved to people who could not work from home, who lived in crowded, relatively crowded circumstances with family members. So if one person got it and you all share one bathroom, everyone gets it. And if that's the case with schools, all this will do will be to exacerbate the inequality that has been revealed and accelerated by the pandemic. Poor people, people of colour, have been the people who have borne The brunt of this virus 83 percent of people in toronto who got covid were not white and so when we talk about schools we're not just talking about the kids we're talking about how this can accelerate it in the community and to have people be able like it's really not that complicated pandemic response you Mm. do everything to keep the virus down and get it down which means lockdowns which means all the stuff we've done pretty well and then once you get it down to a certain degree you have to have great epidemic response stamp out the embers And that's when you get your economy back. And that's when you get your society back to a degree. And we're almost there, but we've seen evidence from around the world that if you don't do it right, you can't underestimate the virus. And so I just think if you want parents to trust this plan, you need to do everything you can. Because I don't care if you're a conservative, liberal, NDP government. I don't think that voters will punish a government for spending whatever it takes to make sure that kids can safely go back to school without a second wave happening in Ontario. I really think that that is one of the bedrock principles that we can count on. And yeah, they're spending money. $309 million isn't nothing. But they could spend more. They could make this better.
0: Yeah. Let's just see if they do. Uh, let's shift back to uh, to hockey. It's, it's uh, Gary Bedman, Bill Daly. The NHL has been fair game on, on a lot of issues. And I've spoken out and you've spoken out. You've written about it. I've talked about it. Um, but, but, um, this is working right now. Um, maybe to the skepticism of some, the bubble has been impenetrable so far. Uh, the games have been good. The competitive nature has been good. Um, do they deserve a lot of credit when even people like you and I might've said, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about a return to play for the NHL. They got a bunch more weeks to go a ton, a ton more games to go eight or nine more weeks, but it's gone well so far, hasn't it?
3: It has. And really, it's, it, it hasn't been detrimental to public health, which is the number one thing. And then it, I really do think, and I was skeptical of this at first, and then a bunch of doctors talked to me about how happy they were to see sports back. I think there is a value to sports being on, to people collectively being able to watch it. And so that's been really good. I think that people have been through a lot through this pandemic, and I think this can help. And I always, I'm always a little skeptical about pro sports when it comes to making those claims, but I'm not right now. And so far, yeah, it's been great. Here's a real question. It's been basically between Major League Baseball and the sports that have done it in the bubble. The way to do this is you've got to separate your people from society, right? You've got to get them out and make sure that they do not have contact with anybody who could possibly get this virus. How does sports happen next year? How does the NHL or the NBA do this next year? How does the NFL do it in the fall? It's going to be really interesting to see how professional sports manages to do a second act, because the first act, it's expensive and complicated. And so far, there have been a number of leagues that have done it well. I'm really interested to see what the future of pro sports is going to be on the next go-around. Are you just going to have a bunch of tournaments like this? Or are you going to do it by division and have bubbles during the season? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's been fun. It's gone really well. Hopefully it keeps
0: going well. Yeah, I, I someone was asking me about NFL yesterday and I'm like, Can you get eight there's thirty two teams, can you have eight teams in four bubbles? Can they play a bunch of games in a row, take two weeks off, reassess that that'll clear some positive cases if you have But then I see like there's uh, the you know the Canadian Hockey League with the OHL involved announcing plans and I'm like well that plan won't work if they don't bubble the MLS says hey look for our schedule soon I'm like are you nuts you could you barely could hold the tournament in Orlando in a bubble you and you got Toronto Vancouver and Montreal franchises so I, I get the optimism and maybe it's just to stay in the headlines Bruce but I'm you can't you can't make a pro- college football forget it utter disaster there won't be one Division One college football game played. I, I'm like, you know it and I know it. There won't be one game play that ends up being successful in September.
3: The, one of my rules in all of this pandemic is we've had so much information thrown at us. We have so much. There's been such an, a wealth of experience and time. It feels like the time before the pandemic is a whole nother world, doesn't it? And one of my rules through all of this is never underestimate the virus. We're still learning about it. We don't know how exactly it affects us. We have a pretty good idea of how we spread it, but we're still not sure on that. Don't underestimate this thing. And pro sports, there's a normalcy bias with everybody, right? When you mm-hmm. look out your window and it doesn't seem like anything's wrong, you feel like you could go and do the things that you used to be able to do in your life. But pro sports is not built for a pandemic in almost any way other than television broadcast. That's one thing with going to a hockey game in Toronto. What you watch was a hockey game. What you watched was a TV show being made. And it works now. It's going to be interesting to see exactly how normal things can be with stuff that... I mean, junior hockey, I have no, no, no confidence that that will work in any way.
0: Well, I hate the idea that as a, as a longtime sports writer, you've uh, you've expensed your last uh, restaurant receipt. I really don't want to see that transpire for people like you or my wife for them. I, uh, you know, I, it's great getting that uh, it's great, 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 uh, great getting that money back on the visa. It really is after a certain point in time. It's like you're getting paid to eat and drink. Shockingly. Exactly. <laughs> Loved having you on, Bruce. Excellent stuff. Uh, read him in the Toronto Star. Thank you again for the time. Thanks, Greg. Hey, thanks for listening. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget, I'm in for Kelly the rest of the week, and you can catch the show every weekday starting at 9 a.m.